A few weeks ago, uh, we had a major crisis in our home. Um, my son's Black Panther action figure broke. And that may not seem like a big deal to you, uh, but it, it was a big deal at our house. And uh, Black Panther is a member of the Avengers. He's very important to the Avengers' ongoing uh, battle against evil and our beagle Nala. And so we needed to do something quickly about Black Panther and his broken hand. And so I found in my toolbox just a, a, a roll of black electrical tape, and I, as quickly as I could, taped Black Panther's hand back on and handed him to my son and said, here, see, good as new. And he kind of looked at it, and he was like, like, thanks, Dad. Like, you know, it, it, it works, right? It's serviceable. It's fixed. He can go back into battle, but his hand doesn't move anymore, and he's not able to do all of the things that he was able to do. It's fixed and serviceable, but it's not, it's not new, right? And, and this morning, I want us to begin a series that will carry us through the month of January entitled Made New. What does it mean to experience new life? In Christ. And I think for me, and, and maybe this is the case for you, we know intellectually that the Bible teaches that we who are followers of Jesus, who have placed our faith in Him, that we have new life in Christ. We read verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And when we hear verses like this, I think we believe it, but oftentimes we, we think about our being made new in the way that I fixed Black Panther, right? Like, we know we're broken, we know we're sinners, and so we come to Christ, and that when he, we come to Christ, he does his best to kind of fix us up and get us back on our feet and push us back out into the world where we can try our best to live right. And many, if, if not perhaps most Christians, live the Christian life this way and perceive of our new life in this light as just a band-aid over our brokenness, trying our best to behave rather than to behold but I'm convinced as I read the scriptures, as we read the New Testament, especially, that this isn't the kind of new life that the scriptures talk about. And it's not the new life that Jesus promises to those who come to him. And so what is this new life that we experience in Christ? How do we understand it? And how can we experience it to its fullest extent? And this leads us this morning to the book of Romans. The book of Romans is perhaps the fullest and most robust expression of the theology of the Apostle Paul. And at the center of the book in Romans is the theme of the righteousness of God. Both God's just righteousness against sin and his saving righteousness towards sinners. All throughout the book of Romans, you see these two things not intention, but unified in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that God is just to judge sin and righteous to save sinners. And in chapter five, the apostle Paul begins to expound on the hope that Christians have because of the righteousness that comes to them by faith 
in Christ. Not a righteousness that has come to us by our own strength, by our own effort, by our own good deeds, but that comes to us only through faith in Christ. And he begins chapter 5 by assuring us that if we have been justified by faith, that we have peace with God and that we have been reconciled with him through Jesus. This is good news to sinners that God has made a way for us to have peace and reconciliation with him. And Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 5 that though in Christ our sins have been forgiven and we have been reconciled to God, and this is the incredible truth of the gospel, the Apostle Paul understands that we are still living in a world that is broken by sin. And more than that, though our sins are forgiven, we are not free from the presence or the practice of sin in our own lives. And so he concludes chapter 5 this way, Romans chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. He concludes it this way by writing, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul has spent most of the first several chapters of Romans helping to to explain the law of God. You see, because the Jews at this time looked to God's law and their obedience to it to save them. But Paul writes that the purpose of the law given in the Old Testament was not to save, but instead to show that we were sinners. Therefore, salvation, because its purpose was not to save, salvation could not come to us by being obedient to the law, by keeping all the rules. That wasn't the purpose of the law. Instead, the purpose of the law was to show us that try as we might, we couldn't keep all the rules. And that if we were going to be saved, that salvation was going to have to come, not through an inner obedience, but through a Savior. And some of you this morning have experienced the sense of futility that comes from trying to find salvation and being a good person and keeping all the rules. It's this hamster wheel that we keep spinning on. And Paul tells us, listen, that's not what the law was intended to do. It couldn't save you. The law can make you moral, but the law cannot make you holy. And so Paul writes that under the law, death and sin reign. But then he gives us this gospel truth, that where sin abounded, where sin was great, grace abounded all the more. Now, what is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor, that though we have earned and deserved God's judgment because of our sin, God has given us grace, and where sin increased, 
Grace abounded all the more. And how does that grace come to us? It comes to us through Jesus Christ. Paul is writing here to the church at Rome that the power of sin was no match for the power of God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. That no sin is a match for the righteousness revealed to us in Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Which led Paul's opponents to ask, I think, a logical and interesting question at the beginning of chapter 6. They hear this, that Paul is preaching where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And so Paul's opponents ask this question. They say, Paul, if that's true, if where sin is great, God's grace is greater, shouldn't we go on sinning so that we can experience more of God's grace? That's the question that is posed at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, where we're going to look this morning. And it's not an illogical question. And, And it wasn't asked by his opponents who desired to go on sinning. In fact, it was asked probably by very moral, upright men who were trusting in their uprightness and their morality to save them. And they say, Paul, if you come in and start preaching that salvation is by grace through faith alone and not by keeping the law... People are going to live however they want. And indeed, we've seen this doctrine misused throughout church history by some who take this to mean that because I prayed a prayer one time or because I walked an aisle and shook a preacher's hand or because I had some kind of spiritual experience once, now I can live however I want because we're Sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's what Paul says. But Paul's response to this question and his teachings after that, I think, helps us to get a better understanding of the new life that we have been saved into by Christ. And it also reveals to us one of the most helpful and encouraging realities of our salvation and the doctrine upon which it all depends. And so let's see how Paul answers this question. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 5 as Paul answers his opponents who say, Paul, how can you say salvation by grace through faith alone? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you this morning for your word. And I pray that as we study this passage today that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive that which you have for us by your spirit through your word. Help us to see how through faith we are united to Christ. And that makes all the difference in our walk. We love you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to study these five verses together this morning in the time that we have. And I want us to ask two questions, just two very straightforward, simple questions of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Here's the first question. What does it mean to die to sin? What does it mean to die to sin? The thrust of Paul's argument here, the answer to his question, centers around that I have died to sin. What does he mean by that? Secondly, how do I walk in newness of life? says that if we have died to sin, we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. How are we to do that? And what I hope we'll see this morning, through God's word, by the inspiration of his spirit, what I hope we'll see as we answer these two questions is this simple truth, that we receive new life through faith in Christ, and that we experience its blessings through union with him. This is a simple elementary truth of the gospel, but it is profound in its application. We receive new life through faith in Christ, and we experience its blessings through our union with him. Let's begin here when Paul says that we are dead to sin in verses 1 through 3. What shall we say then, Paul says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so he asks the question that his opponents have posed to him. And his answer is sure. He says, by no means. And so the question is, should we keep on sinning so that God will keep forgiving? So that we can keep on experiencing more of God's grace by the way that we live? And Paul says, by no means. But this doesn't fully capture the emphatic nature of Paul's answer. Paul is saying, in earnest, no way, or absolutely not. Or one translation translates it, God forbid. To think that this is the way to show that we have truly understood grace is to show that we have misunderstood it from the start. To think that Jesus has come and lived and died and rose so that we might shake a pastor's hand or pray a prayer and then go on from that moment free to live however we want misunderstands the gospel. And it misunderstands the cost that Jesus has paid to offer us his grace. In verse two, Paul says, how can we who have died to sin still go on living in it? Now, this is an important piece to this argument because we have to understand what Paul means when he says that we have died to sin. Because if you are a believer in Christ this morning, this is true about you right now that you have died to sin. But, but it doesn't feel like it, right? It doesn't feel like we're dead to sin. Why? Because we continue in it. And so died to sin here doesn't mean that we no longer want to sin that we no longer will sin, or that sin no longer has power or influence over us. It certainly does, and we see evidence of that every day. But what Paul is saying here when he says that you have died to sin, what he's saying is that when you become a Christian, when you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, you are no longer under the ruling power of sin. Here's what I mean. I mean that it can't control you, that you have the power living in you, the Spirit of God, to resist the temptation to sin. 
earlier in the book of Romans, specifically in chapter one, Paul says that every human being, every person apart from Christ finds themselves under the rule of sin. And because sin rules over us, we, we cannot resist its power. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that we are slaves to sin. Sin is our master, and we must do what sin beckons us to do. But Paul says here that for those who are in Christ, you have a new master. Your standing has changed. He says that we have died to the ruling power of sin because when something dies, you no longer can exert power or authority over it. Pastor Tim Keller, I think, does a tremendous job in his little commentary on Romans, giving us a further explanation of what Paul means. He says, so having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer in you or that it doesn't have any power or influence over you. It does. But sin can no longer dictate to you, though you may obey it. And the Bible predicts that you will obey it. The fact remains that you no longer have to obey it. You have died to it. And it can be dead to you. Now you might say, well, this sounds all well and good, Paul, but what proof do we have? And he gives us proof in verse 3. Look at what he says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Here he uses the, the spiritual language of baptism in our conversion, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are spiritually baptized into his death. That his death becomes our death. And that physical baptism is a, is a picture of this. It's a symbol of this, that, that when we baptize, when one goes under the water, we are physically symbolizing or signifying what has happened to us spiritually, that we have died to sin, that we have died with Christ. This is why oftentimes we'll say as we're baptizing that you are buried with Christ in his death. And so when Paul says that we have died to sin, what he's saying is that for those who are in Christ, though we may still sin, though we may still be influenced by it, we no longer live under the ruling power of it. And those who believe that grace was a license to sin do not realize what it means to truly die with Christ. You see, Jesus' death on the cross for sin was our death to sin, over its power and its authority over us, we can resist. The Bible says that all of us are born into sin, rebelling against God, but that when Christ comes into our heart by faith, gives us new life, we now have the power to not rebel against God, but to rebel against the power of sin. And Paul says, those of you who have died to sin, how can we go on living under its rule? But more than that, in verse 5, he says, not only have we died to sin, but we are alive in Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. Paul again goes back to baptism, right? This is the reason that when we baptize somebody, when we put them under, we don't, we don't hold them under, right? We eventually bring them back up. And in the going under, we symbolize that we have died with Christ. But when we are raised, we are symbolic of the fact that we have been raised with him, that we have a new life. He says in verse five, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So more than simply having died to sin, Paul writes that we are alive in Christ. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we too, those who have put our faith in him, have been raised with him. Why? So that we might walk in newness of life. And, and this is where knowledge and reality kind of come into play. Like, like we, we read this, if you're a Christian, maybe you're like me, maybe not, but if you're a Christian, you're like me, we, we read this and we believe it. And intellectually, we understand it. We know that we have new life in Christ, but if we're honest, it doesn't always feel like it. It doesn't always feel like we have this new life that Paul speaks of. And so how do we walk in newness of life? How, how do we grow as faithful followers of Jesus? How, how do we walk in a way that is honoring him? I think Jerry Bridges, the author and pastor, um, is passed on now, but I think Jerry Bridges is very helpful here when he writes that there are basically four ways that Christians understand growth, that they understand how to walk in newness of life. And I'll give you these four ways and you see which one, maybe which category you fall into and which one we see is, is the biblical way that is prescribed to us to walk in newness of life. Bridges says there's four ways that Christians think about growth. They think about it this way. They think about it, God, then me, or they think about it as God, not me, or they think about it as God plus me, or they think about it as God in me. Now, let me give you what each one of these means. For some of us, we think that walking in newness of life is God than me, meaning that God does everything to save me. I know that I don't have any bearing on my salvation. God saves, God draws, God saves, but that after that, I take over. That, that faith gets me in, but it's effort that keeps me going. Like God saves me and then he kind of steps back and says, okay, do your best. And so that it's our responsibility now to do all the work of growing in faith. And we do that on the power of our own strength, our own desire and our own willpower. And some days we do really well and other days we don't do well at all. And the problem with this, God then me, is that it doesn't account for the ongoing presence of sin, that despite our best efforts, no matter how hard we try, we can't stop sinning. This is the problem that the church at Galatia was having. Despite our best efforts, we can't stop sinning. And so our sin leads us to guilt, and our guilt compounds with shame that we know we should be better than this. I'm better than this. And so we recommit ourselves to redouble our efforts, to do better, which ultimately fail. Some of us don't think of it as God, then me. We think of it as God, not me. And this is kind of the opposite. 
This is where we believe that God saves us and he is the one who will do everything else. And so we say, okay, God, you're gonna save me and then God's gonna make me like Jesus. All I gotta do is just like kind of wait here for a little while. It's a let go and let God theology, right? I'm just gonna take my hands off. Jesus, take the wheel theology, right? Make me like you, Jesus. I'm waiting around here for you to do it. And this is the opposite because instead of being too optimistic of what we can do on our own strength, this is too pessimistic. And God certainly is involved in our growth, but he will not grow us at the expense of a grace-driven effort on our part, which leads us to the third piece, which is this kind of idea of God plus me, which sees Christian growth and maturity is kind of a collaborative effort. Like I do some and God does some. We're partners in this. We're co-contributors to my spiritual maturity. And I think certainly part of this is true. Both God and we are involved in our growth, but this approach sees it as 50-50. God does some, I do some. But Paul has a different idea of how we walk in newness of life and how we grow as followers of Jesus. And it's one that he shares with us in verse five. It's not God then me. It's God not, not God not me. It's not God plus me, it's God in me. Here's what he means. He means that God does indeed do everything to save us. And then by his spirit, he unites us spiritually to his son. And it's through this union that we grow and mature. It's this union with Christ, being united with him by the power of his spirit that produces growth in us. It's 100% God, and it's 100% of our spirit-filled, grace-driven effort. God fills me with his spirit. He unites me with his son, and then I give my best to him. This is what he talks about in Philippians chapter two, where he tells the church of Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like God then me, and it would be if he didn't follow it up with this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. At the very core of our newness of life, if we're going to walk in this new life that God has given us in Christ, at the very core of this is our understanding of a very important theological doctrine called union with Christ. At the center of newness of life is our union with Christ. The New Testament refers to the idea that we are united with Christ over 200 times. That's almost every page of the New Testament. And so if a book comes back to that theme, over and over and over again, you can assume that it is a very important piece. And so, so what does it mean to be united with Christ? What is this doctrine of union with Christ? I think theologian Christopher Morgan does a tremendous job when he explains it this way. He says, union with Christ is the Holy Spirit's work of joining to Christ all of us who believe so that all his saving benefits become ours. Dane Ortland calls union with Christ an umbrella doctrine or a doctrine in which every other benefit of salvation falls under, that over every other blessing of salvation, overarching theme is union with Christ. Because we are united with Christ, 
Because we have union with him, the Bible says that we are justified, that we are no longer condemned. Because we are united with Christ, we are sanctified, we are no longer defiled. Because we are united with Christ, we are adopted, we are no longer orphaned. We are reconciled, we are no longer estranged. We are washed, we are no longer unclean. We are redeemed, we are no longer enslaved. We are purchased. We are no longer in debt. We are liberated. We are no longer imprisoned. We are illuminated. We are no longer blind. And we are resurrected, meaning we are no longer dead because we have been united with Christ. All of the benefits of salvation come to us through our union with him. It's all or nothing. If we are united with Christ, every single truth Every single promise of salvation is true of you today. All of these things. If we are united with Christ by faith, we are already in him justified, sanctified, adopted, reconciled, washed, redeemed, purchased, liberated, illuminated, and resurrected. All of these things come to us by the Spirit through faith in Christ and our union with him. And if you're not in him, then none of these things are true. And so you might say, well, what, what does union with Christ have to do with our growth? Well, everything. It has everything to do with our growth. Because if you are in Christ, united with him by the Spirit through faith, all of these things are true about you. And if all of these things are true, then you have everything that you need to walk in newness of life. Today, you lack nothing. You need nothing to walk in the newness of life outside of what God has already given you. In Christ, God has given us everything in him, everything we need to grow, everything we need to walk in holiness, everything we need to say no to sin. He has given us, this will lead Paul in another place, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, to say, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And we receive the benefit of those promises in our union with him. United, Jesus says, like a vine and branches in John 15. Like a foundation and a building, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Like a husband and a wife and a head and a body, Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, that we have what we need, but it is incumbent upon us to use what we've been given. Whenever my family goes on uh, long road trips, I'm always amazed by my wife's ability to think about the needs and meet the needs before they arise. And she brings this giant bag and like, it's just got everything in there. It's like, if the kids are thirsty, there's a drink. If the kids are hungry, there's a snack. If we need a game, there's a game. If we need the dog, the dog is in there. Like it's all of these things. It's just amazing to me. It's like, there's no need that's unmet. That's like in this bag, we have everything that we could need for this long road trip. And I'm just amazed all of the time by my wife's wisdom in doing that. But how silly would it be for us on a road trip to have all of these things available to us in the bag at our disposal and not use any of those things. You say, well, that's foolish. That's silly. Why wouldn't you use what is at your disposal? And the same is true 
For those of us who long to walk in newness of life, it is not that we need something more from the Father. It is not that he has not given us what we need to walk in newness of life. It is whether or not we will use what we have been given. And so many of us this morning, we feel stuck. We feel stuck because we're, we're trying to will ourselves to experience this new life that we've received in Christ by our own strength and by our own effort. We're, we're, we're trying to earn what we can only receive and what we've already been given through our union in Christ. And this is so often true. I, I don't want to stand on a platform. This is so often true of me functionally. And maybe for you as well. And when we hear newness of life, we think, yeah, yeah, we've been given new life in Christ. But most of us, man, most of us are just white-knuckling our way through the Christian life. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're trying to be good, trying to read our Bible. We're trying to pray. We're trying to tithe. Trying not to cuss or drink too much or cheat on my spouse. Trying to be a responsible citizen, and a good employee, and a decent parent. But all along the way, we just we live with this underlying sense of guilt that, that we're not doing enough. And this shame that, that we keep messing it up. And we won't ever measure up. And we're convinced that God loves us, sure, but, but if we're honest... We don't think he likes us a lot. And so we worry and we wait and we fall into bad habits and unhealthy patterns and we think to ourselves all along the way that one day, one day things are gonna get better. One day I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna just experience all the joy and all the hope and all the peace that the Bible promises but, but it's probably not today. Today we'll just sigh and smile and we'll try to make the best of things. And we go to bed and we wake up every day unaware that the very things we long for, the hope and the joy and the peace that we are desperate to experience, brothers and sisters, they are already ours in Christ if we will have eyes to see. John 15, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you. Listen to this, listen, listen to this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. The joy of Jesus Christ, the, the ruler of all things, the creator of the universe, the author of love, who dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus says, I've written these things to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. He has given us newness of life, not so that we'll barely hang on, but so that we might have joy and all the benefits of salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the freedom from shame, the peace amidst chaos, a power to resist sin, a joy for the journey, purpose in our pain, a place to belong, and life everlasting. They are already yours in Christ. And we receive new life through faith in him. And we experience 
its blessings through our union with him. And so this this promise of new life, it's available to anyone who would call on Jesus in faith. And so maybe you're here this morning, you're not a believer in Christ. Maybe you have been trying to will your way by your own good works, by your own good actions, by your own good will into God's good graces, but you recognize that this morning the futility of those efforts. Maybe this morning you've come to the first time to the end of your rope of just going, I don't, I don't think this is working. These benefits, this truth, this hope that you're longing for, it is available to you by faith in Jesus Christ. All of these things come to us through our union with him. And apart from him, we have none of these things. But maybe you are a believer here this morning, and maybe you just need to be reminded of this newness of life that you have been given in Christ, that it's not some theoretical idea, that it can be a practical reality. And so how then do we walk in newness of life? And as we close this morning, let me just give you three practical applications to walk in newness of life. Number one, fix your eyes on Jesus. And when I say fix your eyes on Jesus, I'm not just talking about your attention, but your affections. You see, attention is fleeting. Something can have our attention one moment that shines over here and then there's something shiny over here and our attention drifts this way. That's not what I'm talking about. Attention is something that is captured in one moment and then gone the next, but affections are different. Affections are an inner enjoyment of the heart. It's a stirring that's reserved for our deepest loves. Any any attractive person can hold our attention for a moment, but only our beloved has our affections. And so when was the last time that you asked the question, what is it that stirs my affection for Jesus? What are the things that I do? What are the places that I go, who are the people that I'm around, that that when I experience this, my love for Jesus grows. What is it that makes you see him more clearly and love him more fiercely than you do? Have you ever thought, what are the things that stir my heart and my affections for Jesus? And when you figure out what those things are, make time each and every day to the best that you can to place yourself in a position where your heart can be stirred in its affection for Christ. We need to be reminded daily of who he is and who we are in him. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, we feed our soul on his word. We feed our soul on his word. There is no substitute for the transformational power of God's word. Listen what the prophet Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight to my heart. All throughout the Bible, the Bible describes itself as food for our soul, that in much the same way that we sit down to an incredible meal and we delight in it and are encouraged by it and strengthened by it to carry on, so too the word of God feeds our soul. And so do not neglect, brothers and sisters, to read God's word, to sit under it, to make time for it, to read for quality and not simply quantity. Let me just say this. Bible reading plans are great. And some of you have started one uh, in the new year. I have one myself. And so I'm not knocking Bible reading plans. But sometimes 
Bible reading plans can get us to just read for quantity and not for quality. And listen to me, as good as it is that you're reading the Bible, if you're skimming it to check a box, you're not feeding your soul. And so feast, brothers and sisters, on the word of God. And find in it, as you return to it, day after day after day, encouragement and rest for your soul. And finally, refresh your heart with this gospel. This is a daily reminder. As the old hymn reminds us, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We must remind ourselves each and every day of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never graduate past the gospel. The gospel doesn't get us in and then something else carries us on. The gospel is and through everything that we are. We always return to the gospel, the truth of our union with Christ and in him we are justified, redeemed, resurrected. So we remind ourselves daily of this wondrous gospel. I wanna close with this encouragement from a book uh, written by Dane Ortland called Deeper that I would commend to you. He considers in one of the chapters this doctrine of our union with Christ and here's what he writes. Consider the darkness that remains in your life. The spiritual lethargy, the habitual sin, the deep-seated resentment, place in your life where you feel most defeated. Our sins loom large, and they seem so insurmountable. But Christ, in your union with him, looms larger still. As far as sin reaches in your life, Christ, in your union with him, reach further. As deep as your failure goes, Christ and your union with him goes deeper still. As strong as your sin feels, the bond of your oneness with Jesus is stronger still. And so live the rest of your life mindful of your union with the Prince of Heaven. Paul, Jesus, the spirit that has inspired God's word, they want us to not only know that we have new life in Christ, but to experience it, to walk in it, to be reminded that no matter how we feel, if we are in Christ, these things are true of us today. And if these things are true, it changes everything. It changes everything. And so may we, this week, walk as people who have been made new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, grateful for just another opportunity to hear, see, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that if there is any in this room this morning who have never put their faith and hope and trust in you, that today might be the day of salvation, that they would call out to you in repentance that they would believe in you by faith, that they would commit to following you as Lord. But Father, I pray for Christians in this room, for my brothers and sisters, for the members of Lake Murray Baptist Church, many of whom, Father, this morning are discouraged, are disheartened, 
are trying their best in their own strength to believe and walk in this newness of life. Father, I pray that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, you would reveal to us what is true about us in Jesus. That you don't love us more on good days. And you don't love us less on bad days. That you cannot possibly love us more than you already do in Jesus Christ. That we cannot be more justified, more adopted, more redeemed, more resurrected than we currently are. And so, Father, I pray that the truth of that reality would stir something deep within our heart, a new affection for you, a new desire to walk in the newness of life that you have not only promised, but you have provided. Help us. We cannot do this on our own. We desperately, desperately need you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?